0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. When it comes to bettering ourselves as artists, it involves a lot of training, coaching, and practice. One popular strategy is called the 10,000 hours rule. But today's guest, psychologist Brooke McNamara, has done research that shows the importance of quality over quantity.
1: When someone becomes an expert versus not an expert or a master versus not is, is an arbitrary cutoff, right? It's a continuous level of performance.
0: Welcome to Why I'll Never Make It, featuring insightful conversations all about the realities of a career in the arts. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, inviting you to join the monthly Win Me newsletter that keeps you up to date on upcoming episodes and podcast information. Sign up at it.com. Today's episode is part two of my month-long series, Bettering Ourselves, Bettering Our Careers, and who better to turn to than a psychologist to help us improve both of these areas.
1: I'm Dr. Brooke McNamara. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Psychological Sciences at Case Western Reserve University.
0: Now, Brooke isn't the kind of psychologist that you go to and lie down on the couch and tell your troubles to. She's more in the field of research and conducts studies on what makes our brains tick.
1: The SLAP lab, the Skill Learning and Performance Lab, focuses on investigating individual differences in learning. Uh, an achievement. So what I mean by individual differences is what each person brings to the table. So whether that's cognitive abilities or different types of experience and how that interacts with different performance domains, performance in music or performance in some sort of work and whether those characteristics of those domains interact with those individuals characteristics as well.
0: One thing I love about Brooke's story is that like many people, she was headed down one particular career path. She was very excited and enjoying that path. That was until life and her own interests took her in a different direction.
1: Well, I'm on my second career. Um, I started out my, so my undergraduate degree is in American Sign Language, English interpretation. Okay. Um, so I worked as an interpreter in Chicago for 10 years. I loved that work. Um, but I was interested in why so many people failed to achieve in interpreting. So what I mean by that is, and this is consistent across all language pairs, so it doesn't matter whether it's ASL in English or whether it's French in English or German and Japanese, a lot of people who decide that they want to become an interpreter are not able to do so, even if they grew up bilingual. And the reason is, is that it's fairly complex tasks. So it's one thing to be able to communicate your own thoughts and ideas in two languages. It's entirely different, especially when we're talking about simultaneous interpretation, to communicate someone else's thoughts on a topic that you may or may not know in real time without control over the pace, the content, the context, the knowledge of the people, etc. So a lot of people who start out wanting to be interpreters either don't graduate, aren't able to make it through the program, or graduate but aren't able to really attain a a professional level of success.
0: Toward the beginning of season four, I did an episode all about American Sign Language and its use in theaters for deaf and hard of hearing audiences. I talked with two interpreters, Mia and Heidi, who gave great insights into the hard work and training that not only goes into learning sign language, but then interpreting that for other people. The two of them found successful careers not only in the corporate world, but also in interpreting stage plays and musicals. But considering the amount of effort, both mental and physical, that goes into interpreting actors and speakers on the spot and in the moment, I can see how tough this profession is and why some end up choosing another line of work.
1: So I became really interested in why that was, why as I was going through my program, so many of my peers were dropping out or failing out. Um, And then as I was working, why there were so many people that were just really struggling uh, to become proficient. So I ended up um, doing a sort of non-traditional master's program where I started looking into cognitive psychology and individual differences and cognitive abilities, such as working memory capacity, which is how much information you can hold in your mind at once while manipulating that information which seemed rather relevant to simultaneous interpreting because with interpreting languages don't have one for one translations most of the time and grammatical structures differ. And that's the same with ASL. It's not the same grammatical structure as English. Right. So you're having to listen to one part of a message and then what you're producing is a different part of the message. And so you're having to maintain a lot of information. So I finished that master's and research bug pretty much hit me there. I wanted to learn more about cognition and more about achievement. And so ended up going a traditional PhD program at Princeton University with the expectation I was going to get this PhD and then go back to interpreting. But even though I loved interpreting and I miss it, uh, I really couldn't give up research. And so changed careers and I'm now in academia and doing research full
0: time. It's interesting that what led you into this field were people leaving ASL Interpreting and why was that? And then it turns out you became one of those people.
1: <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> I like to think not because I couldn't hack it, but because I found a, a different interest.
0: Well, when it comes to hacking it, there are those professions like sign language interpreting, psychology, and even acting that require a certain level of skill and mastery in order to become successful in those fields. And in 2008, Malcolm Gladwell popularized the 10,000 Hours Rule. He is a Canadian journalist and writer known for best-selling books and a popular podcast called Revisionist History. In his book, Outliers, The Story of Success, he proposes this 10,000 Hours Rule based on a study of violinists conducted by psychologist Anders Ericsson. And the rule is pretty much this. Mastery comes after someone practices one skill, like playing the violin, and according to Gladwell, 10,000 hours is the magic number of greatness. Today's episode is going to focus on this rule. It's applications as well as how or if it can be applied to us as artists. So, what is the evidence? Well, Gladwell cites the research done by Erickson that focused on violin students at the Berlin Music Academy. The study found that the most accomplished students had put in about 10,000 hours of what Erickson calls deliberate practice by the time they had turned 20. Gladwell also talks about Bill Gates, who put in 10,000 hours of programming before he founded Microsoft. But one of his biggest examples comes from the Beatles.
2: Everybody knows about the Beatles. They come here in 1964 and the British invasion. The most interesting thing about the Beatles is what happened to them before they came to America. In uh, 1959, when they were just kids, they were invited to go to Hamburg in Germany to be the house band at a strip club. And they went there and they stayed there for months on end. And seven days a week, they played eight hour sets, night after night in this strip club, right? And over the course of that extraordinary crucible, that experience of playing, they taught themselves how to be a great band. In fact, we know, we think now that by the time the Beatles came to America, They had played together as a live band 1,200 times. We could go to all of the clubs on Friday night in San Francisco where all the promising young bands are playing, I submit to you you would not find a single band that has played together 1,200 times, right? Just doesn't happen. So what made the Beatles special? What made them special is that they were willing to play together 1,200 times, willing to play eight-hour sets, seven nights a week, four months at a stretch. And why were they willing? Because they believed in the notion of meaningful work. They had an opportunity to throw their heart and mind into something and get something back. And that made all the difference in the world. And so
0: Gladwell's catchy and easy-to-remember rule caught on and became very popular with some of today's top musicians, like Ed Sheeran. Have you ever heard of this theory about the ten thousand hours theory? When I first started out, I saw Damien Rice in concert, and I mentioned it in a song. I was said, I, "I won't stop till my name's in lights, stadium heights with Damien Rice." And literally, like I watched him and was like, "I want to do that one day," and wrote a song a day, or two songs a day, or five songs a day, and just getting all these songs out of me doing sometimes three gigs a day, sometimes we did six gigs a day one year at Glastonbury, but I think um, my songs were terrible, my raps were terrible, like I've listened to it the other day, It's awful, but I got it out of me, and the more and more you write, the more and more you experience it. So I just say put in your 10,000 hours, write as many songs as possible, gig as much as possible, always be nice to people, because that is how the music industry works now. It doesn't work on who's the best, it, it, it works on who's got the best music and who's the nicest. But yeah, I'd
3: say be nice, write songs, do gigs.
0: But while many people were latching on to this rule, researchers were conducting their own studies into this idea of 10,000 hours. In fact, all you have to do is a simple Google search and you'll find headlines like the 10,000 hour rule about being an expert is wrong. Scientists debunked the myth that 10,000 hours of practice makes you an expert. And finally, why the 10,000 hour rule is a fallacy. In fact, it was through stories like this that I was first introduced to Brooke and her research. So I brought her on the podcast to explain more fully what's wrong with the 10,000 Hours rule.
1: Um, Well, we don't have evidence for it. So when there's not strong evidence to support a strong claim... Then people speak out and say, wait a minute, don't base your life around this so called rule when it's really not based on anything. Um, And I think people speak up because there is a danger in it. So people do make major life decisions about this rule. So someone who had no experience with golf read about the 10,000 hour rule and decided to quit his job to dedicate 10,000 hours of deliberate practice in golf to become a PGA level. A uh, golf expert, which didn't come to fruition. He now sells soda, um, but he made this major life decision, and I think parents often make major life decisions about their kids and and what to get them focused on, and thinking we need to start him or her early so that they can become the next Serena Williams, Yo-Yo Ma, etc. And that sets people up for failure. What makes Serena Williams incredible and Yo-Yo Ma incredible is that they're rare. If anybody could do it just by starting early, then they wouldn't be special. We'd have lots of them.
0: Which is actually the main point of Gladwell's book and why he called it Outliers. These special and highly skilled individuals at the top of their professions who accomplish things that most people cannot Years after his book came out, Gladwell clarified that he wasn't suggesting just anyone can become an expert in anything with 10,000 hours of practice. His point was that a lot of time on top of natural ability was necessary for expertise. But that still didn't stop the criticism.
1: When someone like a pop psychology writer comes up with this idea based on other research, which has its own flaws, and then extends it even beyond, The limited evidence of the beginning and tries to influence people, uh, then scientists and and others who have done some research have to come out and say, whoa, 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 hold your horses. This sounds like a great idea, but there's really no evidence for it.
0: Whatever flaws the 10,000-hour rule may have, it certainly does reiterate the point that there's no such thing as an overnight success. And how does your research also confirm this?
1: So practice is going to be a major, major predictor of improvement within a person, right? You're not going to just wake up without practice and be able to play the piano much, much better than you did the day before. So practice is very, very important for individual change and improvement. Um, What it doesn't predict quite as well is differences across people because people are fairly complex and we have different starting points and we have different learning rates and we have different asymptotes.
0: At the time when she said asymptote, I had no idea what she was talking about. So I had to look it up. Basically, there is a maximum level of performance associated with any behavior. This maximum is called the asymptote. And once an asymptote is reached, no further improvement in performance is possible.
1: Um, and then that comes with the complexity of opportunities and motivations and other things. And so that's where hours of deliberate practice stop being quite as predictive. Now, sometimes it can still be somewhat predictive, but just not nearly as strong as what's been claimed. So, for example, that with 10,000 hours, you'll be an expert. There's really nothing to support that.
0: And is there a difference then between being an expert, I guess being knowledgeable of something, and then being a master of it, which is a lot of what Malcolm Gladwell talks about about mastering a particular skill or subject?
1: Yes, and it depends on who you talk to <laughs> right? <laughs> um, right and across domains and that that's one of the problems with this area of research is that we have these fairly arbitrary distinctions, right? so when someone becomes an expert versus not an expert or a master versus not is is an arbitrary cutoff, right? It's a continuous level of performance. And what is deemed master or expert in one category is going to depend on who's judging it and also how competitive that area is, right? Are lots and lots of people trying to do this one thing, in which case standards increase, Or are there a handful of people in the world doing it? In which case, becoming an expert is still rare, but in some ways easier to achieve. So one thing is to really start to think of it as this continuous level of performance as opposed to some sort of what is ultimately going to be an artificial uh, cutoff at some point.
0: Yeah, because practice really is just one element within several different layers of how someone gets to know a subject or, or becomes skillful at it.
3: Right, absolutely.
0: And even within that practice, there's, it's not just the quantity of practice, it's the quality, it's the type of practice. And so your research also gets into the type of practice is very important as well.
1: Right. Um, So one thing about deliberate practice specifically is that uh, Erickson, who is the the researcher who developed the theory, distinguishes deliberate practice from other forms of experience such as work experience or competitions um, or playful experiences. So for example, in theater, uh, deliberate practice would not be performing. That would be work. Deliberate practice would be what you're doing on your own, ideally led by some sort of coach in between practice sessions or in between lessons uh, where you're trying to work on something specific and then getting feedback from your coach or teacher. And so that has been something that a lot of people have said, well, wait a minute, work experience actually is, is very important because each time you are in a film or are in a show, that experience is going to improve your performance considerably often.
0: And much can be said for auditions are the same way. Many casting directors or coaches will talk about how important the audition process is for us actors. I mean, certainly it is a type of performance, but the more auditions we do, then the better we get at it, even though it is still a performative type of exercise.
1: Oh, absolutely. So experience, other forms of experience are very important. So even though deliberate practice explicitly says they are not important, In many domains, people say, oh, absolutely, yes, they are. Because you could practice some component of acting as much as you wanted, but if you don't have that experience of doing it in front of an audience um, and in front of people who are judging you, you're probably not going to be as good as someone who maybe has spent more time auditioning but less time practicing because it's closer to what you need to be better at. And so that type of practice is presumably, or I'll I'll say practice, but not deliberate practice, that type of experience um, absolutely is going to contribute to your performance development.
0: You know the old saying, "No man is an island." Certainly applies here. Then it's not not just the the number of hours alone in a practice room to eventually gain these skills and success, but it takes that village, so to speak. Uh, and so, how important or what what factor does feedback and critique play in your level of of gaining a skill?
1: Um, so feedback is tricky. And there's people who have looked at feedback very specifically. So how often you receive it. So is it spaced out? Is it delayed? Is it immediate? Um, and again, according to deliberate practice, feedback needs to be immediate. Um, but there's a lot of research out there that, that suggests that delayed feedback actually is a bit better because people then are doing some more processing about their own performance. Um, before they get that type of feedback.
0: <laughs> yeah, because so often, especially in auditions, many times as actors, we don't get that feedback. So it's, a, it's something that we're always looking for ourselves in getting that, you know, what do I need to improve upon? What did you like? What did you not like? That kind of thing. So it's certainly one of those things that helps. But what does your research indicate about setting the right goals for ourselves? You know, maybe recognizing our ceiling when it comes to skill level and achievement.
1: That's tough. Um, so it really comes down to each individual needs to make those decisions. And what I hope is that my research can give people um more information so that they can make better informed decisions. So, for example, if somebody thinks, I'll just practice and I will become the next, you know, most famous actor or most skilled actor because I've practiced a lot, well, chances are that probably isn't going to be the case. You will improve whether or not you'll actually be better than everybody else is potentially not going to happen.
0: How does this aspect of deliberate practice and acquiring a skill, how can it work in relation to a creative and artistic talent and gift?
1: Not well. It it doesn't work well. And so um, perhaps it's better for people to move away from the concept that it has to be deliberate practice and think about types of experiences, whether that's practice, whether that's work experience, whether that's mentoring, whether that's working on your own, that are improving their performance without trying to have it fit under this principle that does not apply to all domains. Um, An issue with deliberate practice is that the focus is on repeating the same uh, type of task over and over again until it's improved. So deliberate practice, the first study on it was on violinists and the second on pianists. So it had a focus on music, but classical musicians. So they are trying to perform something perfect and exact. And people have looked at, say, jazz musicians, which is very different. You're not trying to recreate a piece. You're trying to create a piece. Right. And so when you're looking at creativity, doing the same thing over and over again and trying to improve it is probably not going to be very predictive of how well you can, say, have a jam session or improvise because you don't want to get stuck in a routine where you're practicing the same thing over and over again. You want to try to experience... Um, other forms that are going to influence that process in ways that aren't going to get you in a rut. Um, so jazz musicians have looked at this and deliberate practice is not what's important but more this diversity of experiences.
0: This diversity of experiences has also been shown to be an effective path toward success. David Epstein is a science and investigative reporter as well as a best-selling author of books like Range, which examines the idea of excellence and improving performance. Epstein pushes against the idea of specializing in a particular field early and racking up as many hours of deliberate practice as possible. It's interesting to note that Malcolm Gladwell read this book and stated, For reasons I cannot explain, David Epstein manages to make me thoroughly enjoy the experience of being told that everything I thought about something was wrong. I loved range. So, in this book, he examines the world's most successful athletes, artists, musicians, inventors, and scientists. And he discovered that in most fields, especially those that are complex and unpredictable, that the generalists, not the specialists, are the ones most likely to excel these generalists often find their path late and they juggle many interests rather than just focusing on one they tend to be more creative more agile and are able to make connections that others can't see m brooke's own research found this to be true as well
1: Um, In my own work we looked at we were primarily looking at sports Um, And we found that the Olympic athletes, so the very, very top world-class athletes, were more likely to have started their main sport later and to have practiced more other sports than their main sports, than competitors that were the national class but not the world class. And there's some parallels here. So we also found that in science, this seems to be the case as well. So in Germany, there is a, what is essentially the national level equivalent of the Nobel Prize. Um, And so we looked at German Nobel laureates and then Germans who won the national prize. So comparing sort of this world class versus national class and the same thing emerged. So the Nobel laureates, started their area later and they had lots more experience than other. So if they, they wanted in uh, chemistry, then they actually had worked in biology and they had worked in physics and they had all these other experiences and their milestones were a bit more delayed than the national awardees.
0: Hmm. And it seems like this correlates with uh, certainly artists like myself and teachers and stuff have touted the benefits of an arts education in conjunction with the other STEM classes that are out there and literature and that type of things and how arts really makes for a well-rounded student that can then improve all test scores. Is that kind of along the same lines?
1: Yeah, I believe that's, that's using the same philosophy, And then that would be a great study to look at comparative students who either had that sort of more well-rounded education versus those that were more focused um, and see what outcomes looked like between them.
0: That's certainly one thing within the creative arts, whether we're doing uh, plays or musicals, we're inhabiting characters. And so the more that we're out in the world, whether it's travel, whether it's just people watching as you walk through New York streets or, you know, these different types of outside experiences definitely play into how we can then inhabit those characters on stage.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. When you first reached out to me, I was thinking about... David Epstein's book range and how that would apply to actors because absolutely the more diverse range of experiences, the more different types of people that you've interacted with, the different types of contexts in which you've been is probably going to be able to influence your acting within an area.
0: So while there are outside influences and experiences that can contribute to our own levels of achievement and success, there is also the genetic component or rather the innate abilities and intelligence we're born with that also play a part. As I was doing my own research on this, I discovered the work of New Zealand intelligence researcher, James Flynn, who noticed that IQ scores had risen steadily over nearly a century at an average of about three points every decade. And this observed rise in IQ scores has come to be known as the Flynn effect. I found a TED talk he gave a few years ago, and (laughs) he is the quintessential college professor. Shaggy beard, glasses, plaid shirt, and a cardigan. And in this lecture, he talks about what he discovered about these IQ
3: tests we don't just get a few more questions right on IQ tests. We get far more questions right on IQ tests than each succeeding generation back to the time that they were invented. Indeed, if you score the people a century ago against modern norms, they would have an average IQ of 70. If you score us against their norms, we would have an average IQ of 130. Now, this has raised all sorts of questions. Were our immediate ancestors on the verge of mental retardation? <laughs> because 70 is normally the score for mental retardation. Or are we on the verge of all being gifted? Because 130 is the cutting line for giftedness. Now, I'm going to try and argue for a third alternative that's much more illuminating than either of those.
0: He goes on to make the case that the cause is culture, that society itself has become more intelligent because it's had to come to grips with bigger and more abstract ideas
3: over time. In 1900, 3% of Americans practiced professions that were cognitively demanding. Today, 35% of Americans practice cognitively demanding professions. Not only the professions proper, like lawyer, or doctor, or scientist, or lecturer, but many, many sub-professions, having to do with being a technician, a computer programmer, a whole range of professions now make cognitive demands. And we can only meet the terms of employment in the modern world by being cognitively far more flexible.
0: And I would actually make the argument that theater, and acting in particular, is one of those cognitively demanding professions. With every role and in every show, we embrace the hypothetical, the imagined, the abstract. It was famed acting teacher Sanford Meisner who said, acting is doing things truthfully under imaginary circumstances. And in order to do things truthfully, Well, we have to first acquire many challenging and hard-fought skills like analyzing scripts, exploring both the inner life and outer actions of a character, developing expressive vocal techniques and physicalities. These are all skills that allow us as actors to create honest and complex performances. And getting back to the point Malcolm Gladwell was trying to make, acquiring and mastering these
2: skills takes time. The kinds of jobs we have people do today are sufficiently complex that they require a long time to reach mastery. And what we should be doing is setting up institutions and structures that allow people to spend the time and effort to reach mastery, not judging them prematurely.
3: The
0: Flynn Effect is a concrete example of intelligence and abilities growing over time. And I'll propose another cause for that growth, and that is competition. The whole audition process is set up as a means of comparing our talents, our choices in the room with other actors. This competition for acting jobs is intense and filled with rejection, which can push us and motivate us to continually get better. So I pose this question to Brooke. Does this support the idea that we can really never stop learning or improving in order to maintain our achievement and success?
1: Hmm. I haven't thought of it or, or heard it put in that way. So that's, that's an interesting concept. Um, certainly for sure. You can always keep learning. Um, and certainly for sure, that level of competition is always rising pretty consistently across domains. So I think that um, is potentially an interesting connection there. So that, that could be the case. So everybody is, is getting better and there's, more and more resources and more and more competition each time. So, absolutely, people need to to keep working to improve. What cut it 20 years ago in most domains won't cut it today.
0: Right, right. I mean, what would be 10,000 hours might be 10,005 or 11,000, or you know, it, it might need to keep growing as far as quantity, but then also that deliberate practice that you're doing. Uh, a survey in two thousand and seventeen of seventy five experts in the field of intelligence research they suggested four key causes of that Flynn effect uh, there 's better health, better nutrition, better education, rising standards of living, those kind of outside factors. so these findings would seem to also negate this importance of ten thousand hours right it, it, there 's just so many other factors outside of ourselves than just our practice
1: right, and that 's something that deliberate practice, and certainly the 10,000 hour rule falls prey to the single cause fallacy. So people are complex and performance in types of domains like acting is complex. And these ideas that it's really just this one thing, this simple idea is, is going to predict complex behavior and complex achievement um, is a type of thinking that people like. It's sort of easy to latch on to, but it doesn't explain anything complex.
0: This idea of oversimplification is a constant criticism of the 10,000 hours rule. In fact, Anders Ericsson, whose research is essentially the backbone of this rule, called it a provocative generalization and an incorrect interpretation of his research. Well, here's Malcolm Gladwell addressing his critics.
2: I am accused of simplifying things and I always say why is that an accusation that's called journalism it is our function in the world is to take things that are complicated and render them in a form that non-experts can follow them and make sense of them that's my job so it's like why Of of course I and do I occasionally oversimplify of course I do That is my job as well. Sometimes you have to oversimplify. If you can introduce a topic to someone in a form that is digestible, then they can start adding back the nuance. We can have a conversation and we can start talking about the complexity, but you've got to start the conversation. My job, um, the way I see it, is to start the conversation.
0: And that is exactly what he did. It's not just artists like Ed Sheeran that put the 10,000-hour rule into practice. It's also thought leaders and successful entrepreneurs like Oprah Winfrey, who see its value and implications. In a recent interview with the editor of British Vogue, she extols the virtue of constant work over time. You did
2: not get to be editor of Vogue magazine by not working and working and working and working and working to get here. I
0: love the theory of that there's 10,000 hours behind anybody who ever gets to be successful. And anyone who's listened to Oprah will also hear her talk about the importance of mindset and controlling how we think and feel about certain situations. There's even a mindset theory developed by Professor Carol Dweck, She asserts that what students believe about their brains, whether they see their intelligence as something that's fixed or something that can grow and change, has profound effects on their motivation, their learning, and ultimately, their school achievement. Brooke did her own research countering and critiquing this mindset theory.
1: So the idea is, or the claims are, that if you have a growth mindset, you have a love of learning you uh, put forth more effort to persevere when challenged and you're more resilient to failure where in contrast if you have a fixed mindset you're going to give up uh, very easily you don't want to put forth failure you only want to look good and perform well but you don't actually want to learn because that could show that you don't have the capability so there's been really strong claims in this area saying that this is a rule, that, that these two mindsets create different psychological worlds, and it's the core of people's meaning systems. Um, and there's, again, really not evidence for that. So a lot of these very popular psychology um, ideas that, that turn into self-help books often don't have a lot of evidence behind them.
0: It's something that feels good. It right.
1: feels good, and people love it and buy into it. Um, and both of them kind of play into this American dream ideal, right? That just with enough work and hard effort, anybody can become anything if they just put their mind to it. Um, and so with with mindset in particular, um, we found often no relationship between mindset and these claims, sometimes a very weak, Um, association, for example, growth mindset was um, associated with holding learning goals, but it accounted for 1% of the variance across people. So hardly this, I have a growth mindset and my number one goal in life is to learn, right? So very little differences between them. Um, And in some cases we found the opposite to be true. So um, we found that when we So we measured people's mindsets and then we gave them a very challenging task and then gave them failure feedback saying you did not do well on this task. And we made it very challenging. So they actually did not do very well on this task. Um, And then we gave them easier types of problems to work on and see how well they did. So according to mindset theory, people with a growth mindset... Will sort of pull themselves up and and overcome that failure feedback, and will do better. They'll be more resilient, and people with a fixed mindset will give up. And we actually found the opposite. Hmm. So people with a fixed mindset did better, and it was very small. Again, this was not a strong effect. Um, and And if we account for baseline performance, then there was just no effect. But. These the the evidence for these strong claims is usually not equally strong.
0: And in your definitions or how you define these two mindsets, it sounds like one is one is much better and, and more positive, and the other is more negative. However, it sounds like your evidence that either one can help an individual just depends on that person.
1: That seems to be the case. So, so the definitions I gave are, are Carol Dweck's definitions, right? Um, and so. For the most part, all of the research has has been around that, saying growth mindsets are good, fixed mindsets are bad. We need to get students to have more of a growth mindset so that they can achieve more. There's been a little bit of research looking at fixed mindsets in a positive way, very little, um, and they have been able to show that. So, for example, if you believe that you are good at something and then you're put in more of a fixed mindset, then... You'll do even better than if you hadn't been sort of put in a fixed mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, but presumably, you already have to be confident in your abilities. And I would say that, yes, having a fixed mindset is probably fine, right? That might um, also motivate you to do well. So if you believe that you are good at something, um, you might be more motivated to put in more effort and and do more. So, for example, if you are, Um, a very, very good high school tennis player um, and you're trying to get a college scholarship for tennis, you probably are going to put in more effort and more work and more practice than someone who is a not very good tennis player, knows that they're not very good. So it's not that one thing just predicts the other and it's going to make everyone increase in the same sort of sliding scale. So having a fixed mindset, if you're confident in your abilities can be just fine. Also, even if you're not confident in your abilities, you could say, all right, this is not something I'm good at. Um, So either this is not where I'm going to spend my focus and time and effort and money trying to get better at it. I'm gonna find something that, that better fits my abilities, my pensions, my talents, my personality. Or if it's something that you need to do better, you could also have belief in your ability to learn. Right, So that could also be a fixed mindset, saying, you know what, I don't get this, but I'm smart enough, I can learn this.
0: So when it comes to this idea of of following our dreams and our passions, is it best for us to pursue things that may not come to fruition, which leads to disappointment, which can lead to self-doubt and, you know, a host of other negative effects? Or... Is it good for us to pursue things that may be just beyond our reach? You know, like hundreds of people come to New York, if not thousands, each year, right out of college, I'm going to be on Broadway. And the statistics, you know, as far as that, just don't fall in their favor. So is it a good thing then to follow those dreams and passions in that respect when it comes to mindset? and? Achieving things?
1: Well, it's good if you're one of those few who make it, right? We love the (laughs) underdog story. We love the struggle story. And in fact, we love it so much that we all think that we'll be that person. Um, And so, certainly in some cases, it's going to work out great. In the majority of cases, it won't. If you are privileged enough to have the resources and time to continue to pursue it and it's not, causing problems for your self-esteem, great. Then there's no reason not to keep trying to better yourself in this area. Um, However, you might be better served. You might be a happier person if you found something that fits your abilities better that you also really enjoy. I spoke to a reporter once um, who we were talking about deliberate practice in 10,000 hours and his parents were convinced that they were going to find his sport, the sport that he was going to excel at and he was just going to put in all of his practice and he would be a king at that sport. Um, You know, and it turned out he really liked writing. (laughs) Um, And finally, once he gave up on that dream, his parents' dream for him to become this rock star in a sport, to become this super athlete, Um, which filled them with a lot of disappointment that he didn't make it there. And he felt like a failure each time he was switching to a new sport. Um, He said that it was very freeing to then give up on this 10,000 hour rule to drop it and to find something that really fit him, that he really wanted to do and that he was good at. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the problem with these ideas is that um, what you might first think is your goal might not be your best goal. And the more things that you experience, the more different types of opportunities that you have, the more you can then match what is out there with what you can do and what you want to do. And so when we narrow really early and say, I'm gonna be this cellist, I'm gonna be this basketball player, I'm gonna be this uh, Broadway star, Um, and you're beating your head against a wall for years and years, that maybe isn't the greatest uh, life satisfaction that you can have. And maybe it's time to turn to something else. And I think the problem is that we see that as a failure, Hmm. as opposed to seeing that as fantastic. You're not going to keep pursuing something that is just going to, to drag you down emotionally Instead, congr- congratulations, you're going to move on and find something that's a better fit for you. That should be a celebration as opposed to sadly shaking your head that somebody gave up Um and to think of someone as a failure for giving up, giving up can be the smartest thing that you can do.
0: Right, right. It's, I mean, because I certainly know so many artists that have done national tours or Broadway, and then they just realized, you know what, I'm going to leave New York and pursue this other, this, you know, teaching or, or some other profession. And, and, and they find a, a, a higher sense or just a different sense of joy and satisfaction in going that other route. So it doesn't d- diminish the things that they did or leaving it behind. It just, as you said, it's a, it should be celebrated that they found either yet another passion or something that they can do even better.
1: Exactly. exactly. Yeah. But unfortunately, too many people see that as a failure.
0: Now, this is more of a predictive question. Does your research in any way, whether through the deliberate practice or the mindset, is there basically a way to tell if we're going down a path that's going to lead to failure and now time to back up, go this other route. Why don't I pursue this? And this is going to take me much further. I'll be happier. I'll be more fulfilled. I'll achieve more. Does your research in any way give a clue to, to that type of, uh, of, of hope?
1: That's the $10,000 question. Um, that's what (laughs) everyone would like to know how to to figure it all out ahead of time. Right. (laughs) Right. So no, not really. Um, What I could say is that certainly you can be observant on uh, how you are ranking, so to speak, among your peers. That said, that also assumes that where you are right now and where other people are is is going to continue to be the same throughout your learning trajectory. And that's not the case. So as I mentioned before, the the star athletes, those Olympic gold medalists, were more likely to be delayed in the milestones that they achieved in their main sport, probably mostly because they were spending time with other sports, so they weren't starting early and making these achievements really quickly. They were getting a diversity of experiences and lots of other sports, later chose their main sport, and then they start doing well. But if you look at their overall trajectory, if you compare them to someone who has been putting all their focus in that sport, then they would look like they're performing worse and they would be performing worse at that time. So you have to think about long-term development. And because long-term development is not necessarily the same as short-term development, that's where it gets tricky. You can't just uh, know what it's going to be like.
0: Right. What what may take one person one year to achieve a certain level may take another person five years. And right. if, if the other person stopped at one year, then they'll never know what could have happened at that fifth year.
1: That's what's tricky. There was a, a great study on chess masters. Uh, this was focused on amount of practice. And in the sample of chess masters, there was one who had committed about 3,000 hours of deliberate practice before becoming a chess master. Someone else in the sample, it took 23,000 hours of deliberate practice. Mm. So clearly there's other things going on that are contributing to a performance level other than just practice. Now they both made it. So if that person is perfectly happy spending the extra 20,000 hours, um, becoming a master, that's great. What we don't know. So there's, There's survivorship bias, right? What we don't know are the people who have spent 30,000, 40,000 hours uh, and still aren't masters. So it gets tough not only to know, but also to research because often you can't find the people who didn't make it into this group, right? You don't know the people who tried and tried and tried and didn't make it. So they tend to not be selected into these samples. And so we tend to have this sort of biased skew of experts and what they did to get there. And we don't know the other side, what people did and still didn't get there.
0: Yeah, because there are people who are completely happy, you know, an office worker by day, but then by night they're, they're happy to do rehearsals and they just do a show or two a year and they love it. And there are other people like myself who want to do it full time and have these goals that we want. And so that definition of achievement and success really play a big part in what our deliberate practice is going to look like, I assume.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right. How much time and effort you're willing to spend or can spend, have the resources to spend um, on your craft or on your job or on your hobbies, right? And sort of how you piece those together in your mind and what you're contributing to them is going to vary person by person.
0: With regards to and, and this kind of combines both your, your study of deliberate practice and mindset, is there a correlation between whether it's physical practice, physically doing it versus mentally imagining or going through the exercises?
1: That's a good question. Um, so that has pretty much been looked at more within deliberate practice. So some people have looked at deliberate practice and have counted mental imagery sort of mentally going through um, the steps in their mind versus actually sort of physically doing it. Um, and then sort of depending on the results, critics would either say that was deliberate practice or was not deliberate practice.
0: Um,
1: so it's been looked at, but there was not consensus.
0: And with regards to artists, uh, you know, like an accountant, numbers are numbers. And, and, you know, you can learn the skill of accounting and budgeting and and money and that type of thing. Whereas, uh, you know, the artist, the actor, the singer is a much more creative, fluid field. And what sounds good to one doesn't sound good to another. It's a very subjective field. And so... Is it more difficult to put these kind of scientific studies or rules on an artist versus someone who's in a more, I guess, a solidified field like accounting?
1: It is more difficult. Um, it's more difficult to study whenever it's primarily subjective markers of performance as opposed to objective markers, because then it's very easy to compare across people. That's not to say that it can't be done, but it it is indeed more difficult. Um, what I think is perhaps a key takeaway to think about in terms of differences between, right, something where you can say this is correct, this is not correct, versus something that's a bit more subjective, like the arts, is thinking about how deliberate practice, even with multiple definitions, really does not apply very well to creative enterprises. Because the idea is that you're repeating something over and over again, and that probably is going to be a detriment to creative performance, where it would absolutely improve your ability to perform this calculation um, or perform this piece of music, assuming that you're trying to just recreate something and not create something new. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think... People should expand beyond the concept of deliberate practice when they're thinking about how to improve.
0: It's more of an adaptive practice. So that depending on the piece that you're doing, depending on the show that you want, the role that you want, then your practice, your research for getting that role is going to be different each and every time.
1: Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, once you have a role, then obviously you're practicing quite a bit, right? You're practicing your lines, you're practicing how you say things, you're practicing your blocking.
0: Because then it becomes a bit more deliberative. You know, once you have the role, then it's like, okay, I have these set lines, they're always going to be the same. My blocking is always going to be the same. Then it becomes more deliberate.
1: Exactly. Right. And then you're recreating, not creating most of the time. I mean, there's going to be a process certainly in the beginning, probably most likely where it's, where it's a bit of a mix, but right. Once you know exactly what you're trying to achieve, then you can practice doing that. Um, If what you're trying to achieve is something new and fresh and, um, and creative, then you need to think about it in a different way.
0: And that is ultimately the goal of this whole episode. I hope it's caused you to think about practice and training in a different way. Deliberate practice is all well and good in gaining the skills of a single action or behavior. But That adaptive practice we also discussed is just as important, if not more so, for us in the variety of work that we do creatively on stage or in front of a camera. Brooke and I touched on the subject of mindset as well, but that topic will actually be discussed even further in my next episode with Dr. Alyssa Hurwitz. She's a psychologist who also goes by the name Dr. Drama. That's because she has consulted and collaborated with regional and off-Broadway shows specifically concentrating on those production elements related to psychological concepts and mental health issues. I'll be getting on the virtual couch in the next episode as Alyssa answers tough questions about handling rejection, finding motivation, and how we can define and ultimately achieve success. Now, this episode and the next are covering a lot of deep and complex subjects, hopefully in a way that is understandable and applicable to your work as an artist. So I'll be sending out a special newsletter with links and articles and videos to give a more comprehensive look at the subjects we discuss here on the podcast. To get that email when it comes out, go to it.com and sign up for the monthly newsletter. All right. Well, that does it for me. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and I also take care of the recording, editing, and writing of these episodes. Dylan Adams is the booking producer, and music provided by Blue Dot Sessions and Chad Crouch. Join me next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it.